Gary Hepburn covering Bruce Springsteen's classic song, Adam Raised the Cane. Isn't, it, isn't this a fascinating painting? I'm sorry, I forgot the author's name. I didn't write it down, but this is, this is Cain and Abel. This is Cain in the process of slaying Abel. thought it was fascinating. One of the many attractions I have to Springsteen, we started with one of his videos, played that song there, we're going to end with one of his songs, is, is his music has such substantial Christian imagery. This particular song certainly speaks to someone who is more than a little familiar with the church's teaching on the doctrine of original sin, I think. And it makes sense, in fact, Springsteen readily admits that the Catholic tradition of our faith, as well as writers like Flynn or O'Connor, are the biggest influences on his songs. A lot of people think it's politics, but he says, no, it's not politics. It's, it's my Catholic faith and, and Flannery O'Connor and things like that. Most of his songs, if you listen closely to them, explore the human condition or the possibility of redemption or sometimes both. What I find so haunting about the song I just played and why I wanted to play it this morning is the sense of hopelessness, if you listen closely to it. The inevitability that the desperation of generational curse is never over. It's relentless as the rain, as Springsteen sang. One of those last lines, you inherit the sins, you inherit the flames. Such a dark and brooding image, isn't it? Especially uh, made more so by the lack of any hope that there is something better. That, that song just, just looks at one part of the human condition and it's so hopeless. And certainly such hopelessness can accompany the reading of the Garden of Eden story. Garden of Eden story. Especially when it is read in isolation and it ends with Cain slaying Abel. But thank God, the story of humanity does not end with Cain slaying Abel. It does not end just outside the Garden of Eden. For if that were the case, then hopelessness would be a very reasonable approach to life. And I think that's why there's a lot of hopelessness in the world. That's often the most they can see the story go. But we know the story ends just outside another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it doesn't end with death that ends with resurrection. The divine hope, the, the, the divine yes, our singular hope that we've been looking at for the last few weeks as we've explored Paul's essay. So, most of us are very familiar with both stories, I think. The story of the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. <coughs> but here's the question. Have you ever looked at them side by side? Have you ever taken the time? They're remarkable. There's so many parallels. And I thought today, as we continue our exploration of Paul's incredible essay on resurrection, that we take a minute and look at the gardens. Consider the two stories side by side. Two stories we know so well, but let's take a look and see how they're incredibly interconnected. Paul suggests the connection right here in this homily when he says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die... Wait, sorry, I got confused. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is the first time Paul uses this analogy in his writings, and he's going to return to it a little later in this essay. We'll get there a few months from now, probably. He writes, The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we are born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And Paul most fully develops this analogy in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, which says in part, 
Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So, let me make a side note before we get into the gardens. Alright, this doctrine of original sin, which basically, you know, says the idea that because Adam sinned, everyone who ever lived and will live is a sinner, this is one of these very interesting doctrines of our faith. Very interesting for a number of reasons. One, it has about as many different definitions as there are branches on the Christian tree. Okay, so that's one of the things that makes this a very interesting doctrine. Just talk to anyone from a different branch, they'll give you a slightly different view of what this doctrine means. Number two, even those who claim to strongly believe in one of these understandings of this doctrine probably do not adhere to every single facet of it for a couple reasons. One is, these theories are incredibly complex, and most people don't take the time to get to facet 10 through 20 and 20 through 30, so don't really understand what the entire doctrines do say. And also, because certain facets of, this, of these theories and these doctrines stretch way beyond the scope of Scripture. Way beyond. For example, right, here's, here's one of the more common statements from some of the understandings of, of this doctrine. You, you've probably heard it. The whole human race existed in Adam at the time of his transgression. Okay? Or maybe you, you heard it put this way, almost the same. All mankind was in Adam participating in his sin. So this comes from most common understandings of the doctrine of original sin. Maybe you have heard it. Maybe you say it when you're trying to explain what the doctrine means. Maybe you believe it. Great. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say this. Anywhere. You cannot find this anywhere in Scripture. Okay? The closest you can get is Romans 5.12, which we just looked at. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin. Okay? But you can look at literally two dozen translations of the original, and you're not going to get those two first sentences. Okay? And that's just one thing that makes this a very complicated doctrine in the way people talk about it and think about it. But here's why it's so interesting. Here's another reason it's so interesting. Even with all these complications surrounding this doctrine, it is still easy to see and, quite frankly, agree with what Chesterton was getting at when he said... Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. The strongest saints and the strongest skeptics alike took positive evil as a starting point of their arguments. And for me, that's the issue. I'm not trying to destroy one of Christianity's biggest doctrines and oldest doctrines. What I'm trying to say is I'm not overly concerned with any strict interpretation of any of the different definitions of it because it is clearly evidence that humanity has a problem and that problem in religious language is sin St. John said it this way <coughs> if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and St. Paul said it this way all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God the way you've heard me say it here before Cana is that if God's glory is perfect love for others, and I think it is, Christ is the glory of God, Christ died on the cross out of love for others, then we sin whenever we do not love perfectly. So, is there anyone 
who has never not loved perfectly, to use a double negative, that word. Honestly, have you never not loved perfectly? Have you ever met anyone that has never not loved perfectly? Okay. So, regardless then of understanding how the whole mystery of the Adam thing works, and how it transfers sin nature, etc., etc., the reality is, we're all sinners. Springsteen, another one of his great songs, puts it this way, Well, sir, I guess there's just a meanness in this world. Yeah, there is. We sang that great song this morning, The Kindness of God, which Paul writes about in Romans. I love that, The Kindness of God. Meanness is the opposite of kindness. Look around the world. Look on Facebook. There you go. Go to social media. By the way, check your own posts from the last seven days. When do you mean? I bet you were. Social media brings out the inherent sin in humanity. It's very clear. Flannery O'Connor in one of her great, great stories, one of my favorite characters, says, Ain't anybody perfect on this green earth of God's preachers nor nobody else. See, I don't think you need a PhD <laughs> to understand there's, there's a problem. And everybody's a sinner. Maybe you don't even need a doctrine. But we have one, and there you go. The most important thing, I think, to remember, though, and we talk about this all the time here at Cana, is humanity was not made this way. We were perfectly made, and wonderfully made, and in God's image. And while it's true that image is now cracked, and, and we have been responsible for cracking it, that does not mean we are worthless. God loves us so much, even while we were sinners, He died for us. So how can we be worthless? We are His beloved, even in our messiness. And to be the beloved of God is not to be worthless. At least I don't want to be the person standing in front of God telling God that the people He loves are worthless. If you want to go there, awesome. You go there. I'm not. And it's important to remember this, that we are God's beloved and not worthless. Because sometimes, in people's exuberance, to explain the original sin doctrine, that message can get clouded, can get a little blurred. So let's remember, we are wonderfully made and the beloved of God. So now let's shift and look at the two gardens. For while one garden explains the cracked image, the messiness of our lives, the other garden explains how that crack is healed, reveals God's everlasting love for us. In Eden, Adam was all about Adam. Self-preservation, self-worship, self-pursuit, and so came death. In Gethsemane, Christ was all about God and others. Selfless humility, selfless obedience, selfless love, and so came life. Chavidjian comments on the parallels in the garden this way, The Adam story is really about the essence of sin, our sub substituting ourselves for God. The Jesus story is really about the essence of salvation, God substituting himself for us. Adam's story points us to a better man in a different garden dealing with another tree. Adam a selfish man picked the fruit of a tree, acted disobediently in a garden, and brought death to all. Jesus, a selfless man, hung on a tree after being obedient in a garden, and brought us new life. 
in Eden, Adam was given a choice to be the creature that he was and trust God the creator or try to be God and not trust the God. And this choice was centered on a tree. God said basically, don't eat from the tree, Adam. Trust me on what is good and what is evil. That's it. Simple. Trust me on what is good and what is evil. Just don't eat of it. Adam didn't trust God and instead chose to try to be God. And so death came into the world and all of us have been doing the same thing ever since. See, every time we don't love purely, all we're doing in the final analysis is claiming to be God. Claiming to know better. See, think of it this way. God says to love. Right? It's the way of life. That God said this. I, I didn't say this. Just read the Bible. God says very clearly, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? God says to love. So it's the way of life. We don't trust Him in that. So we do something of it. There you go. Right? I don't mean to offend anyone, but it's sort of just like smoking. You're going to get cancer if you smoke. It's straightforward. Right? It's unarguable. Right? It says it very clearly. If you smoke, you're going to get cancer. That's all right. Now, I understand an addiction comes, and that's a totally different thing. But that initial choice, oh, I'll smoke. I won't get cancer. Okay. Don't try. So God gives us this incredible law which we've twisted and turned into something that's alien and foreign and bad and blah, 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 and we fight against it. But in fact, all he was saying, hey, here's how you live. Live this way. Love others. Forgive your enemies. There's the one. Oh, there's one. No, we're not trusting him on that. We don't do that, you know, right? We drop bombs and say. Um, so he gives us this incredible way of living, and we say, no, we don't trust that. We know what's good and what's bad. And so we do it our way. We didn't really need Adam to pass anything on to us. We've been reaching for the tree ever since there was a tree. Every act of self-preservation is another attempt to be God. Not to trust that our Creator loves us enough to preserve us. Honestly, that, at the end, and, and I'm not saying this to make anyone feel bad. I, I, I feel horrible. You know, I've been studying this for years, and this week as I'm putting it together, I was like, oh yeah, that's all it is. You know, I can blame my wife for not being a good wife. I can blame my neighbor for being a jerk. I can blame my enemies, but it, God said love, and if I trust him, I'm, I'm right. That's what happened in the garden. There's the garden of Eden story. But in Gethsemane, Christ made a different choice around a different tree. Father, not my will, but yours be done. He evidenced in his perfect humanity what Paul would write about to the Philippians. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he obeyed God in this love. He trusted God. He chose the way of God. He chose sacrificial love of others. And in so doing, forever changed the destiny of human being for those who would receive it. We do not have to remain in the line of Adam, forever suffering the inheritance of sin. We can enter the line of Christ, forever living the image of God. 
This is what resurrection, our singular hope, is all about. Living the image of God, living in the line of Christ. Living the divine yes. We do not have to live under the impossibility of Adam <coughs> and his fear and selfishness and his saying no. We can live fearless. We can live courageous. We can live selfless lives of love and say yes. That song I played at Offering by Joe Phillips, Even Still, that's what that was about. Death, you really have no power. You don't. Resurrection is the final answer. We've been studying this for weeks. This is what Christ said. Death is done. So even when the hourglass runs empty, it's okay. Even still, death has no power. Resurrection life. The seminal moment of saying no took place in Eden when Adam said no to God's way of life. The seminal moment of saying yes took place in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said yes to God's way of life. It's a remarkable scene in Gethsemane. We always focus on all these different things in Gethsemane, but this remarkable scene at this moment of the divine yes, it's so understated by the authors of the Gospel that sometimes we miss it. But if you read it closely, you will catch some of the most ordinary, yet most important and powerful words ever spoken. Ever. Jesus said, Rise, let us be on. There's the divine yet. For those of you that know Tolkien's trilogy, Peter Jackson put it on film. And there's this scene which is, is I mean, so many favorite scenes in, in, in the trilogy. But there's this one that just the hordes of evil have surrounded one of the human cities. And it, for all intents and purposes, it's over. The king, the king is even given up. And they're inside the walls and, and they're just biding time and trying to get the women and children deeper into the mountain so maybe they won't get slaughtered by this evil horde that's ready to kill everyone. And the king is basically just talking about we're done, it's over. And Aragon looks at him and says, what are you talking about? And, and the king points outwards towards the outer wall and says, that's, that's just pure evil. What are we supposed to do about all of that? And Aragon just says, ride out to meet them. Oh, it's one of the great, great scenes. And some of the soldiers sort of perk up and the king looks at him like he has ten heads, but he's like, ride out to meet them. They're not the end of the story. This, this, I, I, I imagine Tolkien must have had this scene in his head as he's writing. Pain, suffering, darkness, betrayal, abandonment, death were descending on Christ and he knew it. So horrible were the gathering clouds, the hordes of evil around Christ, that he even prayed for their passing. Sweat blood. And if you read the story carefully, he sweat blood after the angels comforted him. Think about that kind of fear and suffering. But despite all of that, once it was clear that the only way forward to saving the human race 
His beloved lay in that very pain and suffering that was gathering, He surrendered to God's design. Another song we sang this morning. And said, yes, I will love others. I will love God. For even death is not the end. Resurrection called to Him from the other side. And He knew He would rise again and defeat death. And show the world love is the final reality. Rise, let us be going. The divine yes. Our world can be a very dark place. And it seems to get darker all the time. And we all can suffer much. Most of us will suffer much. Most of us, some of us are suffering much right now. Some of us have suffered much. But in the end, there is only life. Only life. Only life. I pray that we all, no matter how dark the clouds get around us, will let the divine yes fill our souls. And might we too rise up and be going. Be going. Knowing that no less than Christ Himself goes with us. And as sure as He rose from the dead, Don't you know that?